0: Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2017 festival podcast proudly powered by Spark. In Paul Beatty's man-booker prize-winning novel The Sellout, The Hero, a grower of artisanal marijuana and watermelons, attempts to reintroduce slavery and segregation in his LA neighbourhood. Beatty's savage satire, reflecting as it does the hypocrisies of contemporary America, often reads like reportage. One of America's most exuberant and tuned-in voices, Beattie is a poet, editor, and the author of three previous novels. He spoke with Paula Morris in an event supported by the Embassy of the United States of America. We hope you enjoy this session.
1: I'm Paula Morris, and I'm very happy to be with you this afternoon, talking to Paul Beatty, and we must thank the, sorry, I'm doing this. Is that better? Must thank the US Embassy. US Embassy, it sounds horrible, for helping to make your visit to New Zealand possible because of the S's. Uh, (laughs) I will now put on my glasses. Uh, Well now we'll have time for questions towards the end of the session and um, we've got microphones for you to use at the time so we can all hear you, afterwards of course Paul will be signing books in the foyer, not just the new book but these ones as well. Um, Please silence your phones if you haven't already. Those of you who are going to be tweeting social media, the hashtag for the festival is AWF17. Which unfortunately is also the hashtag for a very boring uh, conference going on in Germany right now. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking, right now they're having a breakout session called Kundenmanagement im digitalen Zeitalter. <laughs> so I think our festival is more exciting. And proof of this, we got Paul Beatty, a writer of searing intelligence and ferocious wit, prof- possessor of the qualities a truly great novelist needs facility with language. Ability to see the world, I just want to embarrass him, the world and its nonsense and the courage to take it on. He's the author of two books of poetry, four novels, three, this one, and the editor of *Hokum*, an anthology of African-American humor. His most recent book, as you know, The Seller, won the Man Booker Prize last year and the judges compared him to Swift and Twain and reminded us that fiction should not be comfortable. Um, At the beginning of the book, we meet our narrator at the Supreme Court where he seems to be in some Kafkaesque kind of trouble, and we find out he's charged with reinstating slavery on his own farm where he grows watermelon and weed and reintroducing segregation in a local school and, in fact, in one chapter in a local bus. Um, His area of Los Angeles, which is called Dickens, is a place that potential sister cities like Chernobyl refuse to be paired with. (laughs) and he's determined to put it back on the map as The Last Bastion of Blackness. It's a hilariously funny book, and it's sad sad as well, profoundly astute. Explores rich veins of history and popular culture, from our gang to 12 Angry Men, from Prince to Tiger Woods to Darth Vader. It's the kind of book that infuriates the creativity police. It's been called blistering satire, outrageous, audacious, scathing. One review warned that readers turned off by excessive use of the N word or those who are easily offended by stereotypes may find the book tough going. Personally, I could not put it down. Please welcome again to Auckland, Paul Beatty. Thanks, Paul. Now, Paul, you said that this was a hard book for you to write. You said, I know it's hard to read, I'm just trying to create space for myself. And hopefully that can create space for others. So I wondered, why was this a hard book for you to write?
2: Uh, I think for a couple of reasons, but I think um, I think one is you know I'd written three novels before this one. I was getting old, and yeah, I've been getting old for a long time. But um, and uh, you know I think those books. I mean I think they're all decent, you know, and uh. They're all, I think, like critically acclaimed, but uh, you know, I just haven't. You know, it's not my job to sell the books, but you know, um, you know, I had this weird kind of audience. I don't know. I just felt like I was in some kind of uh, precarious place in some in some way, you know. Um, and so it just made everything, you know, like okay, I gotta hit that key exactly right, you know, just something, and. Um, so in, in in that sense, you know, it was kind of an onerous experience to do you know i just I just felt like something was at stake, just like personally, not you know beyond you know the narrative and stuff so uh that's the first time I've ever really told anybody that but uh so I think that's um when you said hard, that's what popped in my in my head at first you know uh you know in terms of the subject matter, i think it's not like it's hard for me you know i'm writing it and you know love hating what i'm doing you know and um so that i mean that's the writing process is hard but i think i knew i was um writing about things in 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 ways people aren't necessarily familiar with or comfortable with and uh just in terms of how you tell a story you know so it made a little hard sort of you know but I, I, I kind of, I would lose that pretty quick, you know, once I got back into what I was doing, you know. Um, so, yeah.
1: Did it take you a long time to write?
2: Yeah, it always takes me a long time. So, uh, this book took like about five years to write, I guess. Mm. You know, it took a long time, um, mostly because I'm slow. Uh, <laughs> yeah, everything has to be just perfect for me to do anything, so. Um, but it, it took a long time. and. Um, uh you know and i i I never you know it took me like about about a year and a half i'd say to to really get a start you know of the book you know i'd made a couple stabs at starting it and um and uh you know i was at a dinner party with my wife and uh her her cousin and her husband are lawyers and they were talking and i had sort of started the book and uh but they were talking about you know, just trying cases in court and I asked them some stupid questions. But it hit me about, something that hit me about the Supreme Court. And then so, didn't make the process go any faster, but I was like, oh, and it gave me a sense of the scope of the book. I was like, yeah, I'm gonna start kind of you know, where the ramifications come to be ramified, if that's a word, <laughs> you know? So, um, so, but that was really helpful in, in terms of me really getting going.
1: So in your first novel, which is The White Boy Shuffle, you take a black kid who's living in Santa Monica and you move him out into West LA. And in this book, Dickens, the fictional place is in Southwest LA. And many New Zealanders go to Los Angeles, it's one flight away. (laughs) It's a long flight, but it's one flight. But many of us just engage with it as tourists. And mm. I wondered, we, we don't really have the sense of the social or political city. Would you talk a bit about that? Yeah, I mean,
2: I engage with it as a tourist, too. So, you know, I mean, it's where I'm from, but you know, I haven't lived there in 30 years, really, mm-hmm. you know. But it's, it's the place, it's not like I know LA or anything, you know. But it's the place where I know how I imagine it, you know. Like, so I'm really comfortable and, you know, it's, I grew up there. so. It's a place where I'm figuring out. You know, usually it's just these characters trying to do the impossible. You know, and so it's a place where I, I, I just, I just kind of know how to to render the quandary that they're in in L.A. somehow. You know, and it's, yeah. And so in L.A. for me is, it's just a place I know sort of, kinda. You know, in a weird way. So it's not so different than here in a weird way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's weird. It's not so different. I'm not sure why I say that. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, I, you know, in terms of settings, you know, I, I, I write mostly about stuff that I know nothing about, you know, that's the fun. But I, I usually do, a, I usually set the books in a place that I at least have been, you know. I never claim to know any place or anything. But it's a place where I can at least, I know my way around to navigate, you know, where. It's like a place where I can fake being lost a little bit. So, and L.A. just fits that.
1: So, you never me. considered setting the story in New York? No,
2: not at all, no. Um, I think I just, I, I just realized that, you know, I'm, I'm a big kid. So, I think, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say what I'm going to do next. I don't really know. But I, I think at some point I just became real comfortable with, yeah, Berlin, L.A., those are the places I know, you know. And uh, so, I, I, don't, I don't really question it, you know.
1: Now, the narrator of, of the sellout writes Californian on a census form. And his California is not really like Joan Didion's California.
2: I wouldn't say that it isn't though, no. I mean, I think, I think one of the things that, you know, I, I try to do is try to get past that, these things of Joan Didion California, you know, because Joan Didion's California is very much my California, you know, like her interpretation is an interpretation I'm really familiar with, you know, at least from my end. Um, she may or may not be any familiar with, you know, whatever my interpretation is. So, yeah, and I, and I think one of the things is, uh, you know, just in, we were talking about LA and, um, you know, I grew up there and I went to school in the East Coast, you know, when I came back and I went, man, LA's backward, you know, and then I was like, well, what do I mean by backward, you know, and am I backward, you know, all these kind of things. And, but it's a it's a place where, I kind of know some of the nooks and crannies, so I had this book, I had these weird ideas for this hominy character, I had this idea to, yeah, what what, what does something like segregation look like in a contemporary context? Uh, And then, you know, I'm thinking about, I know it's going to be in LA, but I don't know where. And so I had this place, you know, there's a place in LA called Richland Farms, you know, I have a friend that works there, and uh, my sister teaches there. And, it, you know, I go home and I go visit my friend and he's a principal, you know, I go visit him and I drive through these places and you see people on horseback, you know, in the middle of something that people think is inner city, whatever that means. But, and uh, I was like, oh, man, I forgot about this place, you know. And, and LA's weird, Compton's weird, this section of Compton's even weirder, you know. And so, again, back to the setting, I was like, yeah, this weird place, which is going to be even weirder when I you know, expand upon it. But I knew that's, you know, these things go together somehow. I don't feel like I'm answering any of your questions. I'm
1: sorry about that. I think you're doing a really good job. Let's talk about Harmony the character, a really great character. He's someone who was a child actor back in the day and had little bit parts with our gang, the little rascals. But he wants to be a slave. He wants to be, and he's got a really great line he said, true freedom is the right to be a slave.
2: Yeah, I actually heard somebody say that. You know, Years ago, I was in college, and a friend of mine and another kid were debating about this stuff, and the other kid was really typical. Um, you know, We're always trying to fit in, but this kid was trying to fit in in, in his environment, and at least that's how I read him. He you know, had suspenders on and slack. It was, I don't know. Anyways, I don't, I don't want to get to this thing. But I remember him saying that, and I remember my friend really going, what the hell are you talking mm-hmm. about? You know. But that really stuck with me. Uh, and so it's, you know, I, I kind of write about the things that stick with me, you know, and it's not about whether I believe in it or anything, but just these things that, you know, make me go back and forth a little bit. So I remember him saying that, and uh, I don't know if it's innate or whatever, learned, but um, I had a professor say something about myself. is that I'm always looking in the wrong place. Like, everyone else is looking there and I'm looking this way, you know? And uh, like in the first book in White Boy Shuffle, I had a character in there. Well, he's very brief, but he's a dancer. He's like a free black man, you know, know, in in the antebellum South. He's a dancer and he gets enthralled by the movement of the... the people picking cotton, mm-hmm. so he runs away into slavery because he wants to, you know, feel what that's about, and so I, I just I don't know where these things come from, but and so I just I, I, I like this notion of hominy, this antiquated minstrel coon uh, supporting actor, all these kind of you know shadow kind of figures, which is you know it's like I like Garfunkel better than Simon, you know, so it's you know, it's, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I like our Girl Funko solo albums are really good. Anyways, but uh, <laughs> uh, these are, you know, like, I don't know if this is me, you know, looking under the rock or whatever, but, um, you know, and just this, this notion that, for me, like, there's so many vestiges of this kind of behavior and this perception that I think get recast in language, recast in we don't see it, all these kind of things. And then so we were talking earlier a little bit about the Little Rascals, so I love the Little Rascals. And so I think, like, one of the first thoughts for the book was, if there's this little kind of coon character picking any character, Buckwheat in The Little Rascals, who's, I don't know, he's an icon if you're a certain age in the States, I guess. And, uh, and I was like, oh, who was the next Buckwheat? Like, you know, as the racial climate changed, who was that next person in line for that sort of stardom? And I, just the phrase, Buckwheat's understudy" just made me laugh a little bit. And, and, uh, and it's just, you know, and, and it's, it's kind of like looking, you know, this character that's really powerful in, in this, this, uh, this figure that's, you know, on the surface, powerless, you know? And so I just, I just had fun, you know, trying to, but he's like the, that, the first real character I had in the book, I think.
1: Would you read us a little bit from our hominy section?
2: Oh, uh, yeah, sure. Would you? I'll, I'll try not to make it too long. Just uh, like midway through, I guess. They say, pimpin' ain't easy, well, neither is slave holding. Like children, dogs, dice, and over-promising politicians, and apparently prostitutes, slaves don't do what you tell them to do. And when your 80-some-odd-year-old black thrall has maybe 15 good minutes of work in him a day and enjoys the shit out of being, being punished, you don't get many of the plantation perks you see in the movies either. No, woe is me, go down Moses' field singing. No pillowy soft black breast to nuzzle up to. No feather dusters, no one says, by and by. No fancy dinners replete with candelabra and endless helpings of glazed ham, heaping spoonfuls of mashed potatoes and the healthiest looking greens known to mankind. I never got to experience any of that unquestioned trust between master and bondman. I just owned a wizened old black man who knew only one thing, his place. How many couldn't fix a wagon wheel, hoe a fucking row, tote barge or lift bale, but he could genuflect his ass off, and from 1 p.m. to 1.15 or thereabouts, hat in hand, he'd show up for work, doing whatever he felt like doing. Sometimes work consisted of donning a shining pair of emerald green, i never read this part before, I'm sorry about that, of donning a shining pair of emerald green and pink silks, holding a gas lamp at arm's length and posing in my front yard as a life-size lawn jockey. (laughs) Other times, he liked to serve as a human footstool. And when the spirit of servitude moved him, he'd drop to all fours at the foot of my horse or the base of the pickup truck and stay there until I stepped on his back and took an unwanted trip to the liquor store or the Ontario Livestock Auction. But mostly, Hominy's work consisted of watching me work. Biting into Burbank plums whose tartness to sweetness to skin thickness ratios took me six years to get just right. And exclaiming, damn, massa, these plums show am good. These Japanese, you say? Well, you must have stuck your hand up Godzilla's asshole, cause you got a green thumb like a motherfucker. <laughs> so believe me when I tell you, I can't believe I'm doing this about this. <laughs> <It's so laughs> uh so I got to get another job, I mean, it's <laughs> this is ridiculous, uh, so believe me when I tell you human bondage is an especially frustrating undertaking, not that I undertook anything, my dominion over this clinically depressed bondsman having been forced upon me. So let's be clear, I tried to free Hominy countless times, simply telling him he was free had no effect. And once, I swear, I almost ditched him in the San Bernardino Mountains like an unwanted dog. But I saw, this is like an inside joke in the book, sorry about that. But I saw a stray ostrich with a far side promotional bumper sticker affixed to its tail feathers, and I lost my nerve. I even had Hampton draw up some manumission papers written in industrial age jargon and paid some scrivener $200 to write out a contract on antique parchment paper that I found at a Beverly Hills stationery store, because apparently rich people still have use for it. What for, who knows, maybe with the state of the banking system, they've gone back to the treasure map. To whom it may concern, the contract read, with this deed, I hereby emancipate, manumit, set free, permanently discharge, and dismiss my slave, Hominy Jenkins, who's been in my service for the past three weeks. Said, Hominy is of medium build, complexion, and intelligence. To all who read this, Hominy Jenkins is now a free man of color. Witness my hand on this day, October 17th, the year of 1838. The ruse didn't work. How many simply pulled down his pants, shit on my geraniums, and wiped his ass with his freedom, then handed it back to me.
1: (laughs) So he was your first character before your narrator, or you had the narrator in mind? No,
2: before the narrator, I just, yeah, yeah. Do you think he runs away with the book? Does he what? Run away with the book. No, I don't think so. I mean, I think there's a lot of stuff in there that runs away with the book. I think it depends, Because
1: <laughs> huh? you don't mind doing things like pausing to, for the narrator to have a big digression about sister cities, which is particularly funny.
2: Yeah, I mean, um, you know, it's, it's, I mean, one of the things that makes it hard, I think, is, uh, is there's a, uh, Somebody used the word templates earlier to me. I had lost my iPhone, and he used the word template about <laughs> my not my phone, my uh, thing. Anyways, there's a lot of layers in the book, you know, in terms of language, in terms of uh, uh, subplots, and all these kind of things. And so, one of the things that's hard for me is, how, you know, I have to figure out how to integrate all that stuff in a, in a way that um, makes sense, you know, at least to me, and hopefully to somebody else. So, um, you know. Uh, I had a, a, a young writer asked me yesterday, uh, he's like, "What's your best advice, you know, to a writer?" And the best advice I happen to have a really good editor, and uh, he just, whenever I get lost, he just goes, "Just tell the story." And I realize, you know, that just gives me freedom to go where I want to go. You know, as long as I'm really cognizant that I am sharing a story. You know, so hopefully, you can do all that kind of stuff and make sense. But uh, yeah, I mean. You know, at some level, there's, you know, I don't know if it's a lot to be said, but there's a a lot of places to go to, you know, and uh, so I try to get there.
1: The book has been described by other people as a satire or as a farce, but you don't feel that way about it.
2: No, I I really don't. Like, I definitely don't think of myself as a satirist. I think it's interesting, you know, for me, it's all the same, you know, I just write the books, different cover, you know, so uh, it's, it's interesting. I'm being a little facetious, but. It's, uh, it's interesting that the word satire has come up with this book, you know, not the other stuff. I'm not sure why that is, necessarily, but, um... Why do you think? Nah, I mean, the, the, the obvious reason is, uh, you know, it's a way you don't really have to say anything, you know? And it's also a way of, none of this is real. This is all, you know, a reverse image of something. You know, you can do that, you know? But it's, it's, a, it's a way of, it's, it's not a word that I like very much, you know, But it's a word I use occasionally. I, was, we were, I, I taught a satire class in college, and I had this really very inappropriate student in the class, this kid named Calvin. And uh, we were talking about this, this issue, you know, cause I was talking about like, I don't know what the word means, you know, everyone uses it, you know, to, to, for deflection. And He goes, oh yeah. Whenever I say something obnoxious and I, you know, piss people off, I go, I was just being satirical. And then they go, okay, <laughs> that's okay, you know. <laughs> so it's, 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 I don't want it like as a, as a, as a, as a, as a filter, you know. I guess that's what I'm trying to get at. And then also, there's the. Uh, I think once you're in the satir, the satire box, that's a hard box to get out of, you know. And so, I can't help what box people put me in, but I'm not going to put myself in that box. And uh, I saw this. Uh, Mark Twain documentary, and you could see him really having to play that satire role and you know, take his show on the road and mm-hmm. i ain't trying to do that.
1: But what about if people say you write comedy?
2: It doesn't bother me as much, you know, and for whatever reason.
1: I mean, that was the thing that surprised me in a way about your Man Booker win. They don't generally give the Man Booker to funny books. I and mean, Howard Jacobson won for a funny book. Your book is really, really funny. I was surprised. were you surprised to win? We're just happy.
2: Oh, yeah, I never win much, so uh, <laughs> you know but um no i was i was I was definitely pleased, you know I didn't think I was going to win. Um, I mean, it, it kind of helped me get through the process like I thought they had picked it, and I was like, yeah, you know, I feel like I've written a good book and you know it's nice to be uh recognized for that, so I was fine, so yeah, I was surprised, you know um yeah, but. It's not like, I don't, definitely don't think of myself as a humorist, but I think you know, that, that word funny is just always there, you know, at least it's there for me. And um, no matter how serious of a book that I like, usually there's an element of humor in there somewhere. There's some kind of, I don't know, levity's not the right word necessarily, mm-hmm. but um, there's that, that, that kind of that ex, you know, looking expanse is something. You know, then I think that's always in things, You know, visual art all the time. Well, your narrator
1: makes reference to reading Catch-22, which is a good example yeah, of that.
2: isn't uh, it? Uh, Yeah, that's like a book that I think of as satire. Mm-hmm. And, like, in having this conversation a lot, um, uh, I was doing an interview, actually, with this guy here, John Day, um, and uh, he was talking about Lolita, and uh, he, he, just, he was talking about this, uh, this interview on YouTube with Nabokov, and, uh, you know, and they're characterizing that book as a satire. And I was like, "Oh, that's a huge disservice to that book." But it's in the moment; it's an uncomfortable book. You know, I'm not trying to, you know, put my book with that. But just in terms of this, this discussion, and um, and he kind of did the same thing. It's like, no, no. And then it also implies like a, like an agenda, a little bit. I, I don't have an agenda, really. You know, and uh, you know, beyond, you know, I want like to at least get people to think. But I'm not trying to tell you what to think. I hope not. You know. Um, you know, just get you to feel, you know, get you, and, and when Nabokov, and he's talking about this tingle at the base of your spine, I was like, yeah, I, I completely get where, you're, what, what, where he's coming from.
1: You said when you won the book, uh, um, I've got it written down, I have to put my glasses on again, I'm afraid. You said uh, that. You didn't want to say that writing had saved your life, but that writing had given you a life.
0: Yeah.
1: What uh, did you mean by that?
2: Oh, man, you have to say something. <laughs> it's... Uh, <laughs> it's... Uh, <laughs> oh, man. I mean, this is the worst thing. It's like everything you said it's like, oh, you know, it's just... Now all my contradictions are just right there. It's just... Uh, it's... Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean... Uh, I mean... Uh, Uh, I I can say, I mean, it took me a long time to decide to become a writer. You know, it took me a long time to realize, it wasn't until I was like 25, you know, to realize, not that long, but it's, uh, you know, to realize how important writing was to me and how much, you know, I'm going to use the word enjoy, but how much I enjoyed the process, you know. And then so if I think, you know, about my, mostly, you know, around, my scholastic history, you know, like how people had like I don't wanna say disencouraged me, but no one had really pushed me to that, you know. And uh and, you know, some sensitive things, you know, in that. And that just um it's 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 really for me just like this admission about how important it is to me, you know, um, for, for a number of reasons. And so that's what I was trying to say. And I think, you know, blackmail, bald, you get these things, ghetto, whatever, you know, oh save my life, you know, it's not my story. But uh, I just felt like, felt like I just had to counter that narrative maybe. That's what I was trying to do, you know. Um, yeah, these are hard. It's hard to hide. You just can't, you know, <laughs> so I'm, you know, I'm just trying to hide basically.
1: You began as a poet, but what made uh-huh. you go into the cross to the dark sides of writing fiction? Poetry
2: uh, uh, poetry's the dark side, really. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know what made me really. Um, I, I just, I got very uncomfortable um, writing poetry. You know, you have to read a lot. It's really public. Um, I'm not really good with feedback necessarily, you know. And, you know, poetry you read and everybody is there responding, you know. Uh, Not many people read poetry, which is not why I stopped doing it. But um, while I was writing, I, I, I got very aware of an audience. And I remember writing, I don't remember what poem it was, but I remember writing some line, some poem. And I went, oh, they're gonna love that. And I just really stopped me. You know, it really raised this flag. I was like, oh, what? You know, that's not why I do this, you know? But I, just, I was just aware of an audience and that I had an audience and there's some other stuff that I don't really want to get into. But, and I had that first novel in my head that I had been thinking about for a long, long, long time. And um, the poems were really long. They were getting long, you know, 30, 35 pages, you know? And I I, I can be real obstinate, you know. I would go to these readings, you know. uh, Three minutes, Paul, you know, I'd read for 40 minutes, you know. It's just, uh, uh, I was, you know.
1: So you were drummed out of poetry. I was drummed out? No,
2: no, I drummed myself out, you know. You know, Rambo quit. I was like, I can quit. So, (laughs) uh, it's, uh, you know, but it was, it just, just, you know, I, I wrote this essay. Somebody had asked me to write an essay about uh generation x i really wasn't generation x but i had this you know these these tales about me and my friends you know about drinking beer and this a bunch of stuff and i really just realized just wow this, this there's a scope and i wrote this essay and there's these charts in it it goes all over the place you know it covers a lot of ground and you know x amount of pages and i was like, oh i can do this you know it just gave me it just, it's just a little more private maybe i think that's the short answer i guess
1: yeah, for someone who says you're private and you, you know. No, you, you sound like my wife right now. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Results. Uh, no, i Results.
2: No, I don't know what you're going to say. I'm jumping. I, I shouldn't have interrupted you. I'm That's sorry. Right. I lost my train.
1: Uh, but you've written a book that, you know, some people could be really offended
2: by. Uh, Do you care? You don't sound like her, actually. <laughs> uh, <laughs> No, nah, I don't. I don't think about that. You know. Um, you know. I think one of the things that my wife uses the word inappropriate. You know, she's, she's just when we first start going out, she was like, "Oh, I'm so inappropriate." And I went, "Oh, yeah, this is good." You know, and because uh, I don't necessarily think of myself as inappropriate, but I know what she meant. And uh, you know, and, and you know, the thing you get is who's your audience? All these 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 questions. And, uh, Stuff that, for the most part, I, like, at least stopped dwelling on. And uh, so, you know, in writing this book, you know, I was like, whether Althea, that's my wife's name, whether she gets it or understands or sympathizes or whatever, I know she's just there. She, she's, her ears are open, you know. So I just had this open thing, you know, and there's bits in the book that are about what does it mean to be offended, you know. And it's like, well, how do I fictionalize this and all this kind of stuff. And um, so, hey, I, I don't worry about it. And you were asking me, you know, what's hard? It's I, I'm aware of that some people might take this, you know. But and my sister's a playwright, and she said to me once, "Oh, you know, people are actually really smart." And I was like, "Yeah, you're right." And it's something I got from my sister and from reading Studs Turkle. you know, when, you know when you when people get a chance to expound on these things. You just have to ask them the right questions sometimes, and then you just go, you know, man, you know, people know what they know, you know? Or good at articulating what they don't know, whatever. And um, so I just have a trust, you know? I had to, took some time to learn to trust myself as a writer, but it's also just trusting the reader, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's, I just, I can't write worrying about am I offending anyone, or I don't think that the books are offensive, I really don't, you know? Um, I could see why somebody might think that, but uh, that's, you know, but that's my. uh,
1: I'm just gonna read uh, this character, Foy Cheshire, is rewriting American classics. Huckleberry Finn, he says, is too fraught with the N-word, so he replaces it with the word warrior, and he replaces the word slave with dark-skinned volunteer. (laughs) And he rewrites the title of Huckleberry Finn as the pejorative free adventures and intellectual and spiritual journeys of African-American Jim, and his young protégé, white brother, Huckleberry Finn, as they go in search of the lost black family unit. So, you had a lot of fun in this book with book titles, yeah? Yeah,
2: yeah, I, um, yeah, I, I did. A set of
1: great expectations, yeah, measured yeah, expectations.
2: Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, but I mean, like, you know, back to the, the, the thing about being offended, it's not like, I think people have a right to be offended, you know? And, uh, it's, it's, Part of this comes from a discussion, I have a friend of mine who's a, she's a pretty well-known comedian. She told like this joke that people thought were really offensive and she was on, it was on television and it caused a little bit of an uproar. And in listening to her talk about it, you know, they had a person from this anti-defamation league and he was telling her why he was so offended with her word choice. And she was very offended that he was offended. And then I was offended, like, oh, no, you know. It's like, you know, people have a right to be offended. So I just, it's, it's a risk that I take by putting it out there. So, um, and, and, yeah, I don't know. I had a point that I forgot. Sorry. But, uh, <laughs> <It's all right>. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, and so with this, this, this passage that you talked about, uh, yeah, I think somebody really did try to write this kind of, I don't know if abridged is the right word, this mm-hmm. censored, I don't know what the word is, you know, version of. Huckleberry Finn it's not like a book that needs me to stand up and defend it which I'm not trying to do necessarily but I'm I'm trying to talk about like these weird you know there are varied ways to read stuff you know and uh, and then so the characters reading of that book is something that you don't hear much you know and and it comes from that happened and then a friend of mine actually wrote like a an op-ed piece about how he was in favor of the book because he had a hard time he, it was a book that he loved but he had a hard time reading it to his kids because of you know because the word nigger and then I was like yeah I man, how do you articulate your I think for me the real interesting thing is how do you articulate your love for the book despite this word you know that's you know that's that's what literature is about that's what being offended not being offended I don't know for me you know and I'm not trying to tell him how to raise his kids or anything but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a, I guess part of it is I think maybe my nature is I tend to like strong beer and you know just things that you have to acquire a taste for I think and um, yeah and, and and just I'm not I, I get uncomfortable when people try to erase things to make things more comfortable you know and uh, I, you know and I like a lot of things that I'm not supposed to like you know and my sense of like does not mean that I love this or I, you know, it's something I respect, but there's something about it that's intriguing for me. Um,
1: What's an example of something you like that oh, you're yeah, not supposed to like? This is where like? I don't
2: want to say anything. This like, I'm <laughs> gonna get out and walk out en masse, you know, so, uh, uh, You don't have to answer. No, but. no, it's all right. Um, so, for me, as, 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 a, as a movie like um, Birth of a Nation, you know, the original D.W. Griffith, it's a fucking evil, awful fucking movie, you know, not stupid. But there's something about how evil it is, you know. I am not say it appeals to me, but there's, you know, there's some, and for me it's it's a constant reminder of like, you know, you shove this movie in the closet and there's so many elements of that movie that are just as relevant, just as pertinent to life today, you know, and so there was a DJ, this guy DJ Spooky did a remix of the movie and I was like, this need to remix this stuff, you know, that's like a, you know, putting water in your scotch or whatever. and so, so I'm using this word like, you know, loosely, but it's like a movie that I try to watch like once every five years, and I just go, man, you know, and I think, you know, what 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 about this is still at play? You know, why does this movie make me feel this way? You know, um, so I had a better example that uh, <laughs> I wish I had said, but um, yeah.
1: Can we talk a little bit about the narrator's father? Another fantastic character a social scientist who plagues his son as a child by doing social experiments on him, so he toughens up and realizes what the world's gonna be like for him as a black man.
2: Yeah, Which, basically like child abuse.
1: Have you, would you read a little a section from the uh, book about the father? I or? might not
2: wanna read that a little bit, but uh, <laughs> we could talk about it, though. We could talk about yeah. it if you want. I, is I, there just, I just don't, don't know, know where, do where it direct. is, so. Oh, okay. Uh, but yeah, so he does these kind of, you know, I I I I uh, majored in psychology. And I was getting my doctorate in psych, in social psych, at one point. And uh, yeah, so these things have stayed with me, and psych has really shaped, you know, how I see the world. You know, um, and yeah, I'm gonna I might tell another little story after this. But uh, so my mom, you know, who raised me and my sisters in these crazy ways, so she raised this to be Japanese for a little while, you know, this, it's uh, it's, uh, it's you know, me and my sisters are all left-handed, and, you know, there's no one who's left-handed in my family except me and my two sisters, and we'd ask her about it, and she'd say, well, I tied your right hands behind your back, and I don't know. <laughs> So I had these little things, you know, and, and I have a friend who, her father's actually a psychologist, you know, and we were talking about, you know, being a kid of a psychologist and all this kind of stuff, and, so yeah, you know, that's, it's from that, you know. But I don't know why I feel the need to tell this, but, um, you know, I think one of the things that I got from psychology, from social psych, is, you know, this sense of, like, what you perceive is not necessarily the case, you know, and also the, the notion that there's so many, so many perceptions happening at once, you know, just in your own head, much less, you know, the rest of the, of the world. And um, there's, I was talking about this earlier today, so I guess that's why it's in my head. I had a professor, this guy, Bob Chin, who was kind of my mentor, I guess he was, and uh, we had a class with him once, you know, we'd meet at his house, this was in grad school, and I can't remember what we were talking about, but uh, a woman said, um, well, you know, we're all human beings, you know, which is something that you hear all the time, and he just like stopped her, he was like, think of your need to state that. You know, and like where we're starting the discourse from, you know, this thing that should be a, a complete given. Like, he was like, there should be absolutely no reason to ever have to say that. You know, for you to say that, I was like, oh man, you know, and that, and I, I've realized this, this is just recently, but not so much about that, but it, 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 it there's something about his, his argument there that has shaped where I want to start my narratives from, you know. Um, and this is, yeah, this is something, you know, it's easy to do as I'm getting older to make all these kind of weird reasonings mm-hmm. about why you do what you do. But that's something that had it always really stayed with me somehow. And I don't know we were talking about psych and that mm-hmm. story just popped in my head. Sorry about that.
1: That's all right. Um, in the, your introduction to Hocum, you wrote something very funny. The defining, defining characteristic of the African-American writer is sobriety. Unless it's the black literature you buy from the book peddler standing on the corner next to the black velvet painting dealer next to the burrito truck, then the prevailing theme is the ménage a trois. And you quoted your sister as saying, never trust folks like Maya Angelou and James (sighs) L. Jones, who grew up in Walla Walla, Mississippi and Boogaloo, Arkansas, and speak with British accents. And I think your sister sounds great. Is it the same sister? Different sister, actually. So many sisters, their hands tied behind their backs. Yeah,
2: they're they're smart, you know, so I, I listen.
1: Do you think there's still that... Tradition of sobriety that's
2: yeah, I mean it's it's a little bit what I was just saying there, you know um, There's nothing wrong with a sobriety. I don't have anything against it, but there's um That notion of what how do you tell your story and why are you telling your stories in this fashion, you know Or what stories get published what stories don't get published. You know, it's just it's just really interesting to me and You know, I think you know, I, I, I never read, like, a lot of black literature when I was young. My mom had a great library. I, I can't think of a single book of, you know, African-American fiction that she had in there. Now I think about it. She had some nonfiction stuff. but So I never really started, you know, like I'm writing in that, the, that little intro to that thing. I think, like, one of the first books of fiction, you know, that I ever started to read was I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. And, uh, it was a book that the school sent us, you know, I was in this program and the school sent all the kids in this program, this little book, and I'm starting to read it, you know, I'm like, <laughs> you know, this is part of this my immaturity, but it's like, I, you know, I really started, you know, I think in the essay, I say, yeah, man, they don't even give us two pepperonis on pizza, but they took the time to spend the money to send this, as well. I was like, what's going on here, you know? And it, was, it was interesting to me, you know, and it was just a book that made me uncomfortable for whatever reasons, but this, it just it just fostered this kind of notion about, how you tell your stories what's you know what's the um the homogeneity to your experience i just it just felt real narrowing to me you know um uh, yeah I, i'm scared now i think althea knows what i'm gonna say but there's you know there's a I, I, i'm just you know trying to trying to it's, it's personal but you know i, I just this this evil word leaping realm, you know about space Mm -hmm. and uh, you know one of the things you know I've learned from that word is you know that that sometimes the space is finite and sometimes the space is infinite and it's just interesting when people are trying to just define your boundaries and so that book is one of those things where you know that message from the public school system and then so you know and and part of that is you know uh, there's a book by a woman named Fran Ross called Oreo that I never read until I was like in my mid 30s early 30s I guess and I was it's such a good book and it's so smart so funny and it's antithetical is not the right word but it it, it can be seen as this antithetical way of you know what these Afri- African American literature is and it's just literature and it's so good but it's this book that doesn't fit you know and uh and part of that's the humor, and part of that is you know this—it's it's this kind of profanity, you know, in terms of spirit. It just—it's—it's it's a book you know that I give to my students, and they—it just blows them away, you know. It just really blows them away. And the students, you know, I'm thinking of a student—I'm just going to say her name, anyways. The student Michelle, and like her raising her hand and going, "How can I write this?" This, but really kind of asking, "Why can't I write like this?" Not from a personal, but like, why won't they let me? Or why won't I let myself write like this, you know? And there, so, I, I don't know, there's something about this restriction thing, you know, that, that I respond to, you know? And, you know, and I, it's just this notion of, um, I think in, this, in, my, in the book Slumberlands, it's set in Berlin in the late 80s, early 90s, and the kid, the, the narrator there talks about how similar it is to being black and East German. You know, because people are always sloganeering at you. You don't have any electricity, you know, all these kind of things. And, and, and it, there's this, this notion sometimes of everyone's trying to define how you're supposed to be and not giving you sometimes just the freedom to make mistakes, you know. Um, it's just something that just, I don't know, not, rankle's not the right word, but these are things uh, that I think about.
1: We're gonna go to questions in a moment. Um, and so if you would like to ask a question, we're gonna put the lights up a little bit. There's uh, two microphones, one on the, the major aisles and also upstairs, I believe, and halfway down. And I just wanted to ask you while we're waiting to mm. see people come forward. Um, we live in strange times, do we not? We live in a, a, a strange place right now. Do you have any thoughts? You mean, the,
2: the Earth, the globe, or the Auckland, gl- or?
1: All of the above yeah. and the U.S. right now. Do you have any thoughts?
2: No thoughts that no one else has, really. You know, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's always strange, you know? It's always strange, you know? You know, I mean, you know, I'm a Marx Brothers fan, Duck Soup, you know, being there, Peter Sellers, you know, it's just, this is, it's, it's just been embodied, you know? It was embodied, it's always been embodied, but now we've got this this thing and yeah, but it's, you know, for me it's about this, this this I mean, we're having, I think, something at least for me that America's having a hard time grappling with. I think it's always had a hard time grappling with is this issue of accountability. And so it's playing out in more and more public things. And even with Trump, like, no one can figure out how to make him accountable. Should he be accountable? It's legal. It's not legal. It's, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know. In some ways it's encouraging because... Because of whatever reason, he's getting this weird kind of benefit of the doubt, let's let the process play out that some people don't get, you know, which I think is interesting. You know, had Hillary been president and there had been some scandal, would it play out like this, you know, in terms of pacing? It's just, I don't know. Um, I don't know, this is not quite exact, but, you know, I'm sort of a World War II buff. You know, you were talking about earlier about like this permission thing. When I was young, my my, my best friend was this kid, David Eisenstadt, this young kid. Jewish, and we were, you know, the biggest Nazis in the world, you know, we were just, we were obsessed with the Third Reich, you know. Uh, yeah, and, and, you know, my mom indulged me, his dad would indulge us and take us to the air museums and we would talk about the Litwaffe and we knew every plane, I just, I don't know, it's just really important to me in terms of freedom of expression. Anyway, but I say that to talk about, like, I'm a little bit of a World War II buff, so I love the stories of, you know, the, 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 the Japanese soldier that's on some island for 20 years. And just recently, like, you know, people find this unexploded ordnance in the basement of some, you know, London suburb or something. And Trump, to me, is sort of like that bomb that's been in that basement for 40 years, you know what I mean? And it's dangerous, sort of, kind of, you know? And how do we detonate it? You know, this kind of weird, and it has all this kind of historical stuff. I mean, it's been there forever, but we just now found it, you know? Uh, So I don't know. I don't have like any real concrete. You know, it's it's. um, Yeah, it's scary. But you know, it's and it's continuing. I mean, there's so many permutations of this. You know, it's like what's going to happen next. You know, what's happened to the process? What's what's that job about now? I mean, there's just you know, these these are questions that are always there. You know, but uh, yeah. Sorry.
1: Please join me in thanking
0: Paul Beatty. Our 2017 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.